I welcome you all to our lecture this evening. Uh, my name is Chaloka Bayani. I'm Senior Lecturer in International Law uh, here at the LSE. And in case you haven't noticed, um, I'm warming up this seat as chair um, of this event. Um, <clears throat> the event is organized by the International Humanitarian Law Project. Um, and it is, it is dealing with a topic that's very topical, the issue of international humanitarian law and human rights in non-international armed conflicts. For some, how can human rights, the law of peace that's espoused by NGOs be related to international humanitarian law, um, the laws of armed conflict that deal with bodies? But in fact, we might find that both systems of law are concerned with bodies um, in related contexts and in somewhat unrelated contexts. But clearly, the context for the lecture is the complex and multifaceted relationship between international humanitarian law and human rights law in the most prevalent form of armed conflict today, uh, and that is the form of non-international armed conflict. To address this issue is one of the most distinguished um, professors in this area. Uh, it's our pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Marco Sassoli. Uh, he's professor of international law at the University of Geneva, uh, he's formerly Professor of International Law at the University of Quebec uh, in Canada. At present, he's legal advisor to the Fact-Finding Commission on Georgia established by the Council of the, Europe of the European Union. He's also chair of the board um, of the Geneva Academy for International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. So if you wanted to know something about the Geneva humanitarian industry, both in intellectual and logistical terms, uh, he's the person to speak to. He's also the chair of the board of Geneva Corps, an NGO with the objective to engage armed non-state actors to adhere to international humanitarian law. From 1985 to 1997, Professor Sassoli worked for the International Committee of the Red Cross and became its deputy head of the Legal Affairs Division. Um, and you can see that we have someone who both has uh, the intellectual credentials as well as the operational uh, and advisory roles that this type of topic uh, calls for. Uh, as is normal, he will speak to us for some 45 to 50 minutes. Um, thereafter, we'll have time for questions. And I just need to remind you that as per normal, uh, again, please, when you ask a question, uh, state who you are for reasons of identity, uh, your affiliation, association, uh, and we hope that we'll have an interesting event ahead of us this evening. Professor Sassoli, your audience. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. I'm very impressed that so many people seem to be interested in this um, apparently are the legal subject of the relationship between two branches in one kind of situations. Uh, thank you very much to the LSE to have invited me. I feel very honored. Um, I think a lot uh, has been written about the relationship between international humanitarian law and human rights law, about its uh, different origins, about, and I think that's an important point to remember, the different structure of uh, their rules, because human rights are formulated, unfortunately we are here 
speaking in English where there are some, uh, two different terms for law and rights. Uh, human rights are formulated in terms of rights. Humanitarian law is formulated in terms of law, of rules, of behavior. The difference of the uh, approaches in the implementation all this has been dealt with, but finally, in practice, both branches, fortunately, uh, lead most of the time to the same results. Um, simply one or the other being uh, more precise, giving more detailed instructions, saying the right to family life of a prisoner of war. Well, in the Third Geneva Convention, you will find a very limited uh, right to family life, at least to correspond with uh, their uh, family, and so on. Um, nevertheless, where possible uh, contradictions could exist, um, the majority view is that uh, the relationship between the two branches has to be dealt with under the Lex Specialis principle that has been said by, uh, stated by the International Court of Justice, uh, by the Inter-American Commission uh, on Human Rights, and by uh, plenty of scholars. What Lex Specialis exactly means is a little uh, less clear. I would say um, one of my students uh, brought this definition which I find excellent, it is, it refers to the question uh, which rule offers the greater common contact surface area between the facts of a situation and the rule. So the more precise rule, the, more, the rule referring to more facts which are also present in the situation, and therefore I'm convinced it's not a question of relation between two branches, but between two rules in a certain situation. And so it's very specific to situation, whether a rule of humanitarian law or human rights law is more specific. Um, this is speciality in, a, in the sense of logic, but as Marty Koskeniemi um, has rightly pointed out in his studies about uh, fragmentation of international law, um, we have also to take into account the overall systemic purposes of international law, especially where speciality in a logical sense uh, does not lead to clear results. But I would say even where it leads to, and may I give you two examples from humanitarian law, um, one of the less controversial uh, issues is that prisoners of war may be interned without any, in an international armed conflict, without any judicial or quasi-judicial procedure without any individual decision for an indetermined time, which is for the duration of the conflict. Um, but if you apply purely the logical Lex Specialis principle, you would see that in Article 21 
of the Third Geneva Conventions, it is, uh, Convention, it is simply stated that uh, they may be interned. And there's nothing about procedure. While human rights law contains plenty about procedure, so in a purely logical sense, one would say, uh, it's human rights law, which is the lex specialis on procedure. Under in what procedure a person may, the decision may be taken to intern a person for an indeterminate period. But the overall systemic purposes show us that no, it must be humanitarian law which is lex specialis on this issue because there's nothing to determine for a prisoner of war individually because he is not interned to uh, punish him or because he did something or because he will do something but simply because he belongs to the armed forces of um, to the enemy armed forces in the international armed conflict and to give you another example um, under the Fort Geneva Convention um, an occupying power may in certain conditions uh, bring protected civilians before its own military courts for um, security for uh, crimes against its security, while under human rights law, um, at least here in Europe, uh, civilians should not be brought before military courts. And this is a more recent rule, and therefore one would expect that we apply that. But the overall systemic purposes of purpose of international law in an occupied territory is precisely that the occupier is not sovereign and may not annex, and if it was uh, bringing its civilian courts into the occupied territory, that would be inherently bringing its legislation into the occupied territory. So the only legitimate presence under international law is the presence of the military forces, and this justifies why, in my view, the rule of international humanitarian law must be lex specialis, but this is again more um, uh, controversial. Okay. Nevertheless, in international armed conflicts, I would say um, there, there are not many uh, divergences, and uh, it is easy to find uh, the rules which, where to find the rules which provide an answer to a certain problem. Um, I don't know, freedom of opinion or freedom of press, obviously you would like, you would look for them into uh, human rights law. And um, who is medical personnel? And when you may shoot on a pilot uh, um, uh, parachuting from an aircraft, that would rather be a question look, you look into in um, into the international humanitarian law treaties. In international, uh, in non-international armed conflict, the issue becomes a little more difficult uh, because at least the treaty rules of international humanitarian law are more limited, and at least traditional non-international armed conflicts, which were internal armed conflicts, there. Uh, it appears much more logical that as it is about the relations between uh, a state and its citizens, the citizens who take up arms against the government, that human rights law has more impact. 
nevertheless, the bo both branches lead again in most situations to the same result. I mean that uh, prisoners may not be ill-treated, uh, that uh, you may not take hostages, that the wounded and sick must be collected and cared for, that uh, the civilian population may not be starved. Uh, you can deduce that from both branches. And even in typically armed conflict-like uh, questions, like the conduct of hostilities, the precautionary measures to be taken to minimize uh, incidental uh, civilian death, injury, or damage to civilian objects. At least the European Court of Human Rights in the Chechen cases, and the European Court of Human Rights always only applies the European Convention on Human Rights, never refers in this context to international humanitarian law. Nevertheless, with one exception, I come back to that, only in one case, it came to a conclusion which would have been different if it had applied um, international humanitarian law. Um, obviously, the, co the application of bo both branches presupposes uh, that both are applicable. And there we have two kinds of problems for human rights law. Uh, there are controversies about the extraterritorial application of uh, international human rights law. If it doesn't apply human rights law, then we have only humanitarian law. No lex specialis problem arises. Uh, and I speak about this in the context of non-international armed conflicts because I have to remind you, um, as the US Supreme Court uh, correctly found out, that the terms of Article 3 common to the Geneva Conventions, which uh, defines a conflict, not defines, but applies to conflicts, armed conflicts, not of an international character, must be understood literally, which means that every armed conflict which is not of an international character is by definition not of an international character, and therefore there can be plenty of armed conflicts outside uh, the territory of a state, and today Afghanistan, Iraq uh, are non-international armed conflict, including when outside armed forces are involved, because they are not interstate armed uh, conflicts. A second uh, obstacle to the application of human rights law is the fact that, uh, according, at least according to mainstream opinion, um, human rights are addressed to states and not to armed groups, while humanitarian law is clearly, and there's no controversy about this, as equally addressed to states as to armed groups. Now, being in England, uh, my uh, eminent English colleague, uh, Andrew Clapham, writes books about uh, and proves that human rights apply also to non-state actors, including armed groups, but this is much more difficult, and even he doesn't say that all human rights across the board apply automatically to every armed group. And for non-international armed conflicts, it is important to speak about both sides. And I think in most of the discussions about Lex Specialis, it is forgotten that 
uh, every non-international armed conflict has at least one non-state actor involved, if not several, or all may even be non-state actors. As far as humanitarian law uh, is concerned, it doesn't apply if it is not an armed conflict. And the lower threshold of armed conflicts is subject to discussion. But tonight I will speak about the situation when both apply. And as I said, most of the time they lead to the same results with two, I think, two important uh, exceptions. The first being the question when a fighter may be attacked. The traditional answer by the law of international armed conflicts, humanitarian law of international armed conflict, is that a combatant may be attacked at any time until the combatant either surrenders or is otherwise hors de combat, uh, wounded, uh, and so on. While obviously the answer by human rights law is uh, you may not uh, deliberately kill someone except in very exceptional circumstances and after having tried to arrest the person and only if it is absolutely necessary we come back to that. So this is a very different rule and it's a question of life and death. And the other issue is detention of fighters in international armed conflicts under humanitarian law. Enemy combatants may be detained without any judicial uh, control, without any individual determination until the end of the conflict as prisoners of war. But they have the advantage of having the full protection of the Third Geneva Convention. While obviously you realize that under human rights law um, there must be a judicial control. Uh, there is a right to habeas corpus and uh, unless there is a derogation uh, in principle people may only be uh, detained if they in view of a trial for a crime. Okay, uh, I spoke about fighter. Why do I use this term? Uh, that's practical in English because uh, combatant and fighter, they are two different terms in French, it's the same word, so you may imagine how despairing it is if I had to give this lecture in French. Uh, why do I speak about fighter? In non-international armed conflict, there is no combatant status, there is no combatant because states, no state in the world wants uh, to recognize that some of its citizens or non-state people representing a non-state actor could have a right to participate in hostilities and combatant immunity against punishment for the mere fact of having participated in hostilities. Um, the problem I mention uh, arises for members of armed groups. I call them fighters and I will come back to it why I think it is important that we limit this discussion to members of armed groups who have a fighting function in the armed group. Okay, so what are um, the difficulties and how could we solve them? First on the issue of um, what you may call killing, um, killing fighters. Now, the rule 
of international humanitarian law of uh, international armed conflicts is that there are some controversies, but very little. As I said, um, combatants may be attacked until they surrender or are otherwise hors de combat. And while you attack a combatant, you don't have first to warn him or her, uh, be careful, I attack you if you don't surrender. You don't have to try to uh, arrest a combatant. Simply if the combatant surrenders, then you have to respect him or her. And there is no proportionality evaluation um, between uh, the importance to put the combatant hors de combat, to kill him or wound him, and the right to life uh, of the combatant. Proportionality is an important rule in humanitarian law, but it protects only civilians, civilian bystanders, uh, incidentally affected by attacks against military objectives or uh, combatants. Now, the question arises, uh, What's the rule in um, non-international armed conflicts? And there, the starting point, I think, is Article 13.3 uh, of Protocol 2, uh, stating that civilians shall enjoy the protection afforded by this part against the effect of hostilities, unless and for such time as they take a direct part in hostilities. And here, the issue is, uh, obviously, what does that mean? There are a lot of discussions about it. There is an expert group um, convened by the ICRC trying to find a definition. Until now, it did not yet find a consensus on this. Uh, it appears, nevertheless, that um, as there are no combatants, uh, fighters may be attacked only while they fight. And now some people say, okay, but if you are a member of an armed group, then you are um, all the time uh, directly participating in hostilities. I think this uh, voids the big, uh, well, first of all, this makes the article itself void because it says precisely unless and for such time. and. It does not recognize the big difference between international and non-international armed conflicts. In international armed conflict, uh, we determine the legitimate target based on status, and in non-international armed conflict, based on uh, behavior, because there are no uh, statuses. But another position, which is... Uh, more compatible with the wording of the treaties is to say, okay, but if you are a member of an armed group, you are simply not a civilian. This is another category. Okay, states did not define combatants. They don't use the word combatants because states believe in the magic of words. And if we don't use the words, the phenomenon will disappear. They hope. It didn't. Nevertheless, as the distinction between civilians and combatants is the most fundamental principle of IHL, it's not possible that in non-international armed conflict everyone is a civilian. And this is uh, compatible with Article 3 common to the four Geneva Conventions, which applies to non-international armed conflict because it 
protects persons taking no active uh, part in the hostilities, including members of armed forces who have laid down their arms, which would mean for members of armed forces, which includes members of armed groups, it is not sufficient that they don't take part in hostilities. In addition, they have to lay down their arms. They have to distance themselves. Somehow, they have to surrender. Okay, so the treaty rules are not clear. Let's look at customary law. Um, the ICC, after 10 years of research, has made a customary law uh, study. And rule number one, which it claims is applicable to both international and non-international armed conflict, says attacks may only be directed against combatants. But the commentary for non-international armed conflicts says the combatants, the term combatant indicates persons who do not enjoy the protection against attacks accorded to civilians, which is quite a circular definition if you look at the rule. Um, and it says state armed forces may be considered combatants. Practice is not clear as to the situation of members of armed opposition groups. So, customary law is not either clear. Should we not, however, make an analogy between the law of international armed conflict and the law of non-international armed conflict? And this is today the general tendency, um, especially of the humanitarians, that they say somehow uh, the for the victims it's the same thing and therefore the same rules should, whenever possible, be applicable in international and non-international armed conflict, which would also have the advantage that we don't have to classify the conflict, which is very often a very complicated exercise, the best thing for an exam, but uh, in real life. Huh? Try to classify the conflict in Lebanon 2006. Uh, try to classify the conflict in Gaza. Uh, uh, try to cl classify the conflict in South Asia, etc. Et so, the advantage of applying the same rules is you don't have to classify the conflict. Um, and also for the soldiers, it's nevertheless more practical to uh, apply, to be trained in um, the same rules. But there are also important reasons, and I am one of those who think that they are more important, not to apply the same rules to the two kinds of conflict. For instance, on our issue, but this is also true for many other issues, simply armed groups are less structured, less clearly structured than governmental armed forces in an international armed conflict. You join or leave an armed group quite informally. Um, there is no incorporation and or official dismissal, so it's very difficult to know who is a member of a certain armed group, who is a member of Hezbollah in addition there is the difficulty uh, to know, okay, what is the armed group? Does it include uh, the political wing, the administrative wing, the police of the group? These were precisely, in my view, the most important legal issues in the recent conflict um, in Gaza. Uh, and it is very dangerous for the civilian population if you simply say everyone who is a member may be attacked at any time. Uh, 
because there is a tendency in many conflicts to see simply those who belong to the other ethnic group to another have another political opinion and so on they are members of the other armed group and then it becomes justified uh, to um, attack them and uh, members of armed groups, unlike combatants, often do not uh, distinguish themselves. They have no membership cards. They try to hide that they are a member. So the result is not clear under humanitarian law, even if we analyze the possibility of drawing an analogy. So let's look at uh, international human rights law. Basically, uh, under human rights law, the rule is quite clear huh? that uh, deprivation of life is only lawful if it is absolutely necessary for, in the European Convention, for a limited number of purposes. And if you look into the soft law in the um, UN uh, basic principles on the use of force and firearms by law enforcement officials. Um, it must, it is limited to cases of self-defense or defense of others against an imminent threat of death or serious injury, and there must always be a warning. And uh, the use of lethal force is very exception, uh, exceptional and. Uh, only when strictly unavoidable in order to protect life. In addition, the proportionality principle clearly also applies to the very target, the uh, fighter to be attacked. Now, uh, what shall we do? I think under the Lex Specialis principle, obviously it would be better if uh, we could have uh, one clear solution saying always IHL, always uh, human rights law prevails. Um, the jurisprudence, by the way, of human rights bodies is not at all clear. We have uh, the Inter-American Commission, which is normally very much for human rights. In the Tablada case, it simply considered that people who were engaged in an armed attack on a military basis lost their right to life until the moment when they surrendered. And it did not at all check the conditions of uh, human rights law, whether it was legitimate to kill them. In another case, uh, before the Human Rights Committee, the Guerrero case, there the committee was rather applying the human rights rules. Uh, possible uh, FARC members were uh, killed when they did not really attack the police but try to flee. In the human, humanitarian law terms, one would say a soldier who flees, you may kill him. <laughs> this is not surrender to flee, while Colombia was found in violation with the Human Rights uh, Covenant. Um, the European Court of Human Rights had nearly always to deal with civilians or possible civilians, except, and this was the case I was referring to, uh, 
at the beginning of my presentation in the Katsieva case, a recent case, the court, but I know, I'm not sure whether it knew what it did, left it open whether these were members, Chechen, uh, members of an armed group, armed people, and said anyway, it is not uh, convinced that Russia took the necessary precautionary measures, so it considers that Russia must take precautionary measures even when aiming at armed members of an armed uh, group. So, what shall we do under the uh, Lex Specialis principle? Well, I think um, there's not one single solution. There are the two extreme cases. The two extreme cases many people speak about are, on the one hand, the FARC, that's the Fuerzas Revolucionarias Armadas Colombianas uh, in Colombia, the FARC military leader who would uh, visit his mother in Bogota for her 80th birthday. Um, may he be killed deliberately by the Colombian security forces or must they try to arrest him? As Colombia has full control don't quote me, over Bogota. Uh, okay, there are all kinds of criminals, but no FARC in uh, Bogota. I would say the rule of humanitarian, uh, the human rights law, sorry, human rights law, I didn't say, no. human rights law is the Lex Specialis because it is more, it was more made for precisely such a situation where the government has control, while obviously if uh, the Colombian armed forces sent a missile on a training camp of the FARC somewhere in the jungle. They don't have, before they send the missile, uh, send a warning saying uh, surrender or we send the missile. And they don't have to try first to arrest these people as long as they do not uh, surrender. So I think there is somehow a sliding scale. And uh, in borderline cases, I think the essential criterion is whether um, whether the governmental forces have to fear interference by other fighters when they arrest the person. And if they don't have, they have to uh, act according to the human rights paradigm. If the whole thing is extraterritorial, uh, like uh, British forces in Afghanistan, then I would say, because I'm of those who think that human rights law applies extraterritorially, uh, anyway, uh, the per it is a question again of control that human rights law applies at all only for persons who are under the jurisdiction of the state and this is only in a place which is controlled by either the United Kingdom or its allies or altogether or the Afghan government while if they send the missile on a um, um, uh, training camp of the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, then it's humanitarian law which uh, prevails. Now, is this same solution applicable to the enemy, to the armed group? That's more difficult. Uh, 
because on the one hand under humanitarian law it is essential that both sides are bound by the same rules and have the right same rights and obligations with all respect to my friend Andrew Clapham I'm not so sure that under humanitarian uh, under human rights law anything like that exists and simply an armed group can an armed group have an obligation to have recourse to law enforcement? A government has. On territory it controls, it must try to arrest a person. But can you say an armed group must try to arrest a person and then can it judge a person, can it detain a person, on what legal basis? Therefore, but I hesitate, I would suggest that for armed groups uh, international humanitarian law is always the lex specialis. Let's speak now about the other issue, which is detention. Um, in humanitarian law, the starting point is always the law of international armed conflict, and in humanitarian law, as I told you, prisoners of war may be detained without any uh, judicial control. Uh, of their detention until the end of the conflict. That's combatants. While civilians uh, may be either detained, protected civilians in international armed conflicts, may be either detained in view of a trial or are civil internees um, in a kind of administrative detention. There must be an individual uh, determination if they are, there are imperative security reasons, they may be deterred, they must have a right of appeal, but it's not under humanitarian law necessarily to a judicial body. It may be an administrative uh, procedure and every six months it must be reconsidered. What about the law of non-international armed conflicts? Well, we have nothing. In the treaties on applicable to non-international armed conflicts, there are important rules on how detainees must be treated, and there are judicial guarantees for people who are prosecuted. But there is no rule saying you may detain someone only if you prosecute him. And there is no rule saying for what reasons you may detain someone. Let's look at uh, customary uh, international uh, humanitarian law. According to the ICSE, there is a rule saying arbitrary deprivation of liberty is prohibited. It is based mainly on human rights practice, and therefore it's not very useful for our discussion because obviously it mixes the two. Uh, the commentary says that the basis for internment must be previously established by law. There's an obligation to inform a person who is arrested of the reasons of arrest. That we have it only also in Protocol Additional 2 to the Geneva Conventions. And an obligation to provide a person deprived of liberty with an opportunity to challenge the lawfulness of, uh, of detention. So somehow, in reality, as it is based on human rights practice, this uh, rule of customary humanitarian law, it is referring to the Lex Specialis, which in my view is international uh, human rights law on this issue. 
Now, on human, to come back to humanitarian law, obviously here too the uh, question arises whether we would, should not uh, make an analogy with the clear rules of applicable to international armed conflicts and therefore it would be for a fighter necessarily be an analogy to be a prisoner of war status. The arguments in favor and again are similar than those on killing. Nevertheless, there are some differences, uh, one being uh, in favor of an analogy that parties to non-international armed conflicts are encouraged by Article 3 common to the Geneva Conventions to conclude special agreements putting into force other parts of the Geneva Convention. So it would be not only lawful, but encouraged by humanitarian law that uh, parties to a non-international armed conflict put the whole third Geneva Convention into force, and then there's no need for judicial control. In addition, the government could even do it alone under an old institution which has not been used the last more than 100 years, a recognition of belligerency. A government can recognize the belligerency of rebels and then the law of international armed conflicts applies and then the rebels have no more judicial guarantees. So, on the other hand, obviously to know whether someone is a fighter uh, needs a determination and in case of detention this can be done contrary to killing, because there, obviously, the person is already dead. While in case of deten uh, detention, you can arrest the person, and after some time, uh, someone determines. But this presupposes that you don't deal with the person like with the prisoner of war, because then there is no determination. And that's an important argument to rather uh, not apply the same rules than in international armed conflict, in addition, non-international armed conflicts. For non-international armed conflicts, it's more difficult to determine when do they end. Uh, for instance, let's assume that um, President Uribe in Colombia is successful and that finally he uh, crashes the uh, FARC, but uh, does the conflict only end when the last FARC fighter somewhere in the jungle has been captured? Mm? Does that mean that all others may, may be detained without any judicial procedure until the last fighter is captured? By the way, in Colombia, the official position is that they all must be brought before a judge. State practice is not very clear because some countries apply habeas corpus, other countries do not apply. Now, I think if we are looking for the Lex Specialis rule on this, the fact is simply that uh, the rule of uh, international humanitarian law is quite uh, of international human rights law. Sorry, that, that's obviously the worst thing you can do when you speak about two branches and you mix them always up. So you must be absolute and confused. Sorry, <laughs> of international human rights law is quite clear under. Uh, the European Convention, at least, it is clear that um, someone may be detained only in view of being tried 
with exceptions which are not of uh, relevance here, like migration, uh, crazy people, uh, miners, and so on. Okay. And anyway, everyone has the right to habeas corpus. There may be, in human rights law, contrary to the right to life, to the right uh, to personal freedom, there may be derogations, but the right to habeas corpus has been found by different human rights bodies, not clearly by the European Court of Human Rights, but by the uh, UN Human Rights Committee and by a nearly an, uh, unanimous uh, uh, front of uh, scholars as being non-derogable. Uh, Therefore, while there may be some doubts of the non-derogable character, for the rest, the rule of human rights law is clear. And the person who is detained is, by definition, under control of the party detaining that person. And therefore, I think that a human rights law always prevails, except if there has been an agreement to apply the Third Geneva Convention or a recognition of belligerency. And if you think, as I do, that uh, human rights apply extraterritorially if a state has jurisdiction, well, the clearest case of jurisdiction is if you are detained by that state. Mm. What about armed groups? Well, um, that's again a tricky one because uh, on the one hand one would like that uh, someone in the hand of, armed group, uh, of an armed group may also uh, challenge the fact that he or she is detained. On the other hand, it is delicate uh, to require from an armed group to respect the human rights law on deprivation of freedom, of freedom uh, which would mean there must be a legal basis. How can a, an armed group legislate to provide a legal basis for detention? And then there must be a court, court under the European Convention and under universal human rights law, uh, checking, applying habeas corpus. Uh, a court must be established by law. How can they establish a court? Uh, how can an uh, armed group establish a court? So it might be that for armed groups, again, uh, we have to, I hope Andrew Clapham doesn't hear me, we have to forget about human rights law, and we have simply to apply the humanitarian law rule by analogy from international armed conflict, which would mean at least a possibility to challenge the detention, but certainly not the need of a legal basis, at least for a fighter, for a government. Um, soldier. To conclude, I would like to stress again that uh, also for our, at least my intellectual satisfaction, I'm a, I mainly spoke about these two uh, problems where the two branches lead to different results. I would say in most situations they lead to the same result and the real problem in the field is not that those involved in armed conflicts do not know what to apply but simply that none of the two is respected in contemporary armed conflicts. Now, 
On the two issues I spoke about, I must admit that I remain hesitant and that uh, there are arguments for both approaches. Um, I have a certain, I have a tendency to think that from a legal point of view, the correct answer, as I said, on killing is to say it depends of the degree of control, why on detention it's always human rights law which prevails. The question is whether this solution is practicable and uh, I hope I do not uh, become unpopular with my friends from the human rights community when I have to choose between a more humanitarian solution and a practical solution, I have a tendency to favor the practicable solution because uh, the humanitarian solution, which is not practicable, does not protect anyone because no one will respect it. But practicability is not the same thing than simply comfort, uh, lack of training, uh, easiest solution, uh, laziness. And therefore, I think we have to determine very precisely what is not practicable. And government representatives and military have a certain tendency to uh, simply tell others, this is not practicable. Hmm. And then, what do we know? Because most of us did not make war. Um, so, I think this should be carefully determined, but it should be carefully determined as you heard during my whole presentation, not only for governments, but also what is practicable for armed groups, because humanitarian law can only be respected by the parties with the cooperation of the parties. Thank you very much. I think this spontaneous applause speaks for itself. Um, we've had a very engaging and stimulating lecture. Um, and it's now time to see whom you've alienated and whom you've carried on board. Um, who would like to start? Any questions, comments? There is a lady. Sorry. Yes, please. Hi, uh, I'm from Kingston University and I have a question. Um, what do you think should be the role of international humanitarian law when it comes to cyber conflicts as happened in Georgia in August? Because there the civilian and combatant distinction fades away. Shall we Shall take I? three at a yeah. time? And okay. Some silence in the room. Everyone charmed, satisfied? <laughs> Professor Francois Hampson at the back. Thanks, Francois Hampson, University of Essex. A couple of quick comments and a couple of questions. The first comment, I noticed that you used, and we've got up on the screen, the European Convention on Human Rights. Clearly, there are fewer problems with the wording of the covenant which refers to arbitrary killings and arbitrary detentions. I think that need, might need to be taken into account. The second comment, I think it may be necessary to distinguish what I'd call traditional 
non-international armed conflicts, that's to stay within the territory of State A. State A is fighting a non-state group. And those cases that are called non-international simply because they're not international, for example, forces in Afghanistan. The reason that I mention that is that Protocol 2 was designed against the backdrop of there being domestic law that was going to be available. And it is more complicated when you're dealing with it outside your own territory. My first question is, how does um, the issue of custom interact with the question of the Lex Specialis and the issue of case law? Does the Lex in Lex Specialis mean treaty, mean treaty plus interpretation in case law, or does it also include custom? And the other question concerns issues other than killings and detention. Are you saying that you think there isn't a problem that human rights law can um, adequately address the issue taking account of the backdrop of conflict, or are you not going as far as that? I have in mind questions that are part of human rights law, such as the obligation to investigate, and issues like freedom of assembly. I'm not certain whether there is an adequate answer yet to how the interplay of IHL and human rights law works in those situations. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm from a student from the LSCM Law Department. Um, we recently had Dr. Al Gross here, and he was mentioning about how he didn't think that, hum that human rights law can apply in, in occupation, and I was wondering if you could comment on that. Okay, thank you very much for these uh, questions and comments. On uh, cyber conflicts and human rights, I have still to think. On humanitarian law, my first uh, reaction is um, it depends whether it has um, violent results, otherwise it's not an attack. And humanitarian law deals with other things than attack, but uh, the principle of distinction applies only to attacks. So, for instance, propaganda may be made indiscriminately or even target civilians as long as, as it has no violent effect on the civilians. Um, whether there were violent effects on civilians or not, you may understand that as I am in this commission, I will not say that uh, now. But that would be the rule which should be applied in my view. Um, thank you, Francoise, on the arbitrary detention on the, uh, under the covenant. Uh, indeed, it facilitates things, but at least according to the Human Rights Committee, habeas corpus to a court is non-derogable, and therefore we have a contradiction with uh, humanitarian law. Uh, I agree that the traditional uh, that there is a problem with non-international armed conflicts abroad because we don't have the domestic law. Okay, we have nevertheless the domestic law of the host, host state. So in Afghanistan there is domestic law. It's simply it's not English law but Afghan law. Um, but indeed, uh, the, although it applies to such extraterritorial non-international armed conflicts, 
most of its rules were made thinking about uh, internal armed conflict. Customer Lex Specialis, well, this is a fascinating issue. Um, sorry, I come from the other side of the channel, and therefore I come from a civil law system. Um, I would say Lex Specialis is um, in international law uh, something which refers to uh, written rules, to treaty rules, because traditionally customary law is derived from precedent, from practice and opinio juris in uh, relation to the specific problem or as similar as possible to the specific problem. And this is why, and I should have corrected myself when I said uh, uh, the ICSE says under customary IHL, but in reality it's customary human rights law. There is no customary IHL, customary human rights law. There is simply a customary law answer to a certain problem. But this is, be conscious, the, a very traditional answer um, to based upon a traditional theory of sources. Today, customer law is the black tunnel. And everyone who likes a rule, obviously it's difficult to say the rule is in the Geneva Conventions if it is not there. And therefore you say, I like this rule, it's customer law. Um, and this is not only scholars and students. Uh, sometimes in my exams I have to write down, don't use customary law, because it's, uh, otherwise it's easy. You don't have to classify the conflict, you don't have to classify the person anyway under customary law, and I can't say it's wrong. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> let's come back to... No, so, and uh, all states too have this tendency and who am I to criticize that? And therefore, I must admit that today customary law is more and more derived from statements, from texts, from treaties which do not apply as treaties. And there, indeed, there can be a similar phenomenon of lex specialis. On the, uh, on the judicial practice issue. That's an interesting one because it would mean that first, human rights law, every time there's new jurisprudence, displaces humanitarian law because it gets more specific and therefore more easily the leg specialis. And then every time the international criminal tribunals invent a new rule of humanitarian law, it again displaces uh, human rights law. So I would have a certain tendency to say that the jurisprudence should take into account both branches and does not displace the frontier between the two branches. And by the way, this is not simply a wish of mine, but for instance, the International Criminal Tribunal for the, Yugoslavia, for the former Yugoslavia uses human rights law in interpreting humanitarian law. And with that, I wouldn't say this has now become a rule of uh, humanitarian law. On other issues, I should uh, not remind Francoise, because she knows that better than I, uh, remind myself that uh, human rights law is much more flexible. 
and with the limitation clauses and uh, the jurisprudence of the human rights body shows that they will apply uh, the same treaty rule in an armed conflict uh, situation uh, reasonably uh, in another way. And so I think on other issues uh, there can be a reasonable application of international human rights law. Uh, by the way, your issue of inquiry, I must say, is a question of the right to life and therefore falls under what I said. And therefore, when the Colombian armed forces kill a, a FARC member in Bogota, they have to make an inquiry, while I would say, uh, contrary to Philip Alston, that uh, there's no need of inquiry when they send a missile into a training camp of the FARC and some FARC members were killed. The dividing line being probably uh, whether there is a suspicion that a war crime was committed because then you could construct that there is also an obligation under humanitarian law to uh, make an inquiry. Finally, human rights law uh, in occupation, well, I know him, um, and he has a noble cause for saying what he says because indeed the Israeli Supreme Court abuses human rights law to take into account human rights of people who shouldn't be there, the settlers. That's prohibited by humanitarian law, and therefore I fully agree while these people have human rights, you cannot put them into the balance of security measures, constructing walls, and so on. So uh, I see his point, but somehow, because he has a point, he tries to destroy something which is very important, that in occupied territories, human rights apply. Think about uh, what should IDF do when there's a violent demonstration. Uh, humanitarian law doesn't contain any rules about how to fight against civilians who do not directly participate in hostilities, but who throw stones, for instance. This must be human rights law. And there are plenty of other issues which for which humanitarian law of military occupation has no answer and therefore we need human rights law. We should simply not abuse of uh, human rights law. Okay, um, shall we pick three more questions? I'll start from uh, Professor ah, Charles Dalloway. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's I didn't see. Thank you. Thank you. It was a... Uh, this is, uh, I almost feel like, uh, you know, this is seen in, uh, not that I'm very famous as Marshall McLuhan, but in a Woody Allen movie that he argues with someone about Marshall McLuhan and then he brings Marshall McLuhan. He's, like, <laughs> He's here and I can ask him. So, in any hall. So, I just want to, to <laughs> thank you for uh, the discussion, uh, but I just want to, to uh, uh, emphasize that my argument uh, in my work on human rights and occupation. Uh, and we talked about it before, in, and, uh, and, and, and thanks for mentioning the talk that I get. It's not, it was never really a normative argument saying it should not apply as a normative basis. My argument was about the consequences of applying it. Mm. And of course, and we, ha we had this discussion once in Paris, and I had it with Francois a few times. And my only disagreement is that uh, uh, both Francois and you say the Israel Supreme Court abuses human rights law, which I agree with 
as a statement general. But what I disagree with is that uh, humanitarian law, as, a, as, I, as I mentioned in, in my working on that, has a special category of protected persons and requires a special balance of the rights of protected persons living under occupation as defined in Article 4 of the Geneva Convention and security. Human rights law has to be universal. That's the, the idea of, that's at its heart. So once you move to human rights law, you can, yes, I agree the Israel Supreme Court distorts it, and yeah, I agree the settlers don't have to be the under humanitarian law. But once you move to human rights law, you just open it to this distortion so easily, because once it's universal, you cannot say a settler is not a human being. You cannot say a person is illegal. You can say he lives illegally under international law, but he is not illegal. So the Israel Supreme Court justly say there is no such thing as an illegal person, and every person has a right to have his life defended wherever he lives, regardless of the legality of what the question of whether he lives or not. And then, uh, uh, to give the example which I bring, which, I, which when you said, I think both bodies of law would bring a similar answer, and as we, as we know under humanitarian law, for example, you can only destroy civilian property if there is absolute military need. But then, when you bring in human rights, you bring the whole package of freedom of religion, freedom of movement, freedom of life, freedom of security of the person, and suddenly you have to balance all of those of the settlers. And you can say under humanitarian law, they don't have to be there. Absolutely right. But you do get stuck with the problem of universality of human rights, which says that as long as the human being is somewhere, he or she are defended to protect of human rights. So for freedom of movement, there is a solution because uh, under the ICCPR, it's freedom to movement within his or er own country, and you can say the occupied country, territories are not his own countries. But for other rights, you don't have, I think, uh, the solution unless you say uh, the art, for example, the prohibition on destruction of severe properties, the lex specialis, that should apply. And I'm, and and that's a good answer. Uh, no, it's it's a good answer, and we have this answer. But what it's important for me that we what was important for me that we understand is how the universality of human rights does upset the balance struck in humanitarian law, which gives special category of protected persons. And human rights law, because it has to put everyone on an equal plane of universality, uh, cannot do that. And, and, and how thus taking human rights, which is developed in the context of equal citizenship between people, and taking it to this context of the occupation, uh, may often distort as a result. So I'm, you know, so, the, the, so you said I'm coming from a noble cause, and I can say the same, you're coming from a noble cause of expanding the protection of living under, the, expanding the protection of people living under occupation. But actually, because of the universality of human rights, we give tools to actually uh, uh, cause more violations to the rights of the people. Okay, let's not have another lecture. I think the <laughs> points have been met fully. Um, Professor Charles Garraway had a hand up here, and anyone in that side of the room before I cast my eyes elsewhere? Professor Charles Garraway, please. Thank you, Charles Garraway, various affiliations, um, including at times LSE. Marco, I also want to talk about the universality of human rights, because when you start talking about practicalities and practicabilities, one of the issues one's got to look at is the whole question of derogation. Now let us take Afghanistan, for example. Now we know that there is no detention facility in Afghanistan, um, certainly under Afghan control, that meets European human rights standards. What is the position if Afghanistan derogates 
and permits internment. What is the position then of the European states assisting the Afghan government? Can they rely on the derogation made by Afghanistan under the covenant, or do they have to make their own derogations under the European convention? How does the host nation's human rights obligations and the obligations of those states that are assisting the host nations, how do they coalesce and how do you put them together? Sandra, as always. <laughs> Hello. Um, you mentioned that uh, international humanitarian law and not necessarily human rights law apply to armed non-state groups. Um, and that the problem is that in practice these groups have little initiative to, or that, um, yeah, little initiative to adhere to these norms. And there has been some innovative, possibly controversial uh, measures to engage uh, non-state armed groups to improve their respect of, of interna international humanitarian law. Um, and to what extent do you believe that these measures have been or that they can be effective? And, um, and what are other measures that can be take, taken to strengthen the initiatives for non-state armed groups to actually adhere to these humanitarian norms? Well, uh, I understand and uh, I see the problem, but it is precisely there that I think with legal argument, including based on the uh, Lex Specialis principle, uh, one can find solutions and it is always bad to make law based on one situation and I must say that in all other occupations, people would be happy if they had at least human rights. It is because of the settlement issue that the discussion becomes distorted and there. Uh, this is very specific in this occupation. So for instance, in the occupation of Iraq uh, by uh, uh, the United States and the United Kingdom, I'm not conscious of any such problem that somehow, because they by hypothesis, because they denied, uh, applied uh, human rights law, somehow humanitarian law was weakened. Uh, as always, Charles Garraway asks uh, the most difficult questions. Uh, I will ask that to my students in an exam. It's a wonderful one. Uh, because I, I indeed, I agree that uh, it is too easily said by everyone who is uh, professional do-gooder, including professors, that human rights apply extraterritorially. But then when you come to the nitty-gritty, it becomes complicated. Nevertheless, I must say, Afghanistan didn't derogate. So at least in Afghanistan, the problem doesn't appear. But, uh, and the relationship between the human rights obligations of the host state and third states, I would say, uh, it depends in every case of who has control. Uh, that's the issue. Um, on the measures to engage non-state armed groups, well, uh, I'm not, that's an issue, although I'm Swiss, I'm not neutral. I'm in favor of engaging armed groups. Um, engaging armed groups involved in armed conflicts. 
obviously, because otherwise you don't get uh, respect of humanitarian law. Whether these measures are efficient, I can tell you. Uh, in Geneva call, um, the more than 40 armed groups which undertook a deed of commitment not to use landmines, we have no case of clear violation. I would be happy if this could be said of states, that there, there is no clear case of violation by them of their commitments. Obviously, I cheat because uh, not to use landmines, it's easy, relatively easy to uh, check and it's a very little rule. As soon as we would expand into, and we are expanding into child soldiers issues, into uh, women uh, rights issues, or even conduct of hostilities, obviously they would also violate their obligations. What is important is nevertheless that there is a follow-up, and there's a monitoring, and there's a dialogue, and there's a, a creation of uh, constituency within the armed group uh, and a certain sense of ownership. Now, uh, obviously, I understand the point uh, is saying, okay, but somehow you legitimize, you help these armed groups. Well, I, agreed with, I agree with the Swiss prosecutor who refused to prosecute me for complicity with terrorism when a certain state, because I'm the chairing the board, asked to prosecute me because he, in my view, correctly said, I don't see how this helps the group not to use landmines in its actions. Uh, so the fundamental issue is that obviously, I'm not a fanatic of armed groups, please don't think that. I mean, a world without armed You're groups... Really no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, a world without armed groups would be a better world, but it's a reality, and so it's like those who have developed humanitarian law, they didn't think that wars are a nice thing, but they said it's a reality and it will happen even if we don't develop humanitarian law, and if we want to protect some people in such situations, we have to deal with these situations, and if you want to deal with the situations, you have to speak with those involved in the situation. And if we make an, a manual on naval warfare, we have to speak with the navies to do to bring out something practicable, and if you want to make law which should be respected by armed groups, you have to listen to armed groups. Otherwise, this law will have no impact on reality. May I just uh, exercise the chair's discretion and, and, and raise one question, and it is related to your conclusion, just where you stopped and say that they both lead to the same result. Uh, but the issue is one of respect. What then are the consequences for lack of respect and the attribution of responsibility in terms of international human rights law and international humanitarian law? Uh, in other words, is it not the case that international hum human rights law has become attractive um, in terms of obtaining remedies because of the fact that you know, the remedies and responsibility is attributable to the state? whereas under IHL, perhaps that may not be the case. I would say until recently, I would have fully agreed with you, and 
this is precisely the reason why more and more humanitarian law issues are brought before human rights bodies because they exist. There is no humanitarian law body. Um, because the ICSE is clearly not uh, a remedy. It is uh, because it doesn't react to violations. It is not the victim who seizes the ICSE. The ICSE is there uh, permanently, preventively, and so on. So indeed, and I see no disadvantage, um, especially if they know it, uh, if human rights bodies uh, apply um, international humanitarian law and apply it uh, as is done, I would say, quite correctly in the inter-American system. Uh, they apply the Lex Specialis principle and they find the applicable rules. The European Court of Human Rights tries to avoid absolutely to refer to humanitarian law except in a recent case where they got it absolutely wrong in Latvia. But this is a historical Article 7 case. So, mm. so after having read that, I said perhaps it's better that on Chechnya and Turkey they did not deal with humanitarian law. But as such, this is a good thing. Why did I say until recently? Because now, thanks to the remarkable development of international criminal law and international criminal justice, at least in theory, we have, again, the balance goes to humanitarian law because many human rights violations are not criminalized, uh, while much more humanitarian law uh, violations are criminalized. And so there we have also remedies, but it's not really a remedy of the victim. And I obviously agree that despite all nice speeches, in reality, it's very poor. And uh, it happens only on some contexts uh, and in a selective way and so on. But I think especially for the remedies, both are even more than for the substantive rules complementary and uh, can bring together uh, better remed remedies. Um, states clearly do not want a system of control of humanitarian law. One of the reasons being, and fortunately it's one of the downsides of the development of international criminal law, uh, that they terribly fear that everything can be used against them in a future criminal uh, trial. And this is also one of the reasons why they do not want any development of humanitarian law or any more precise definition, including, I'm convinced, but this may be a procès d'intention, why in five years in the ICSE process were we not able to define what is direct participation in hostilities because it's the question war crime or not because to attack a civilian is a war crime except if that civilian is directly participating in hostilities and therefore states are interested not to define what this means because then a court will not be able to sentence, except Cassese, because he would simply say, customary law says this. <laughs> and then the, the person ends up 20 years in prison. But uh, other criminal courts have more uh, scruples.
Okay, we have time for one more question. Anyone burning with a question? Yes, please. Wouldn't you agree that one of the main problems why we cannot apply many of the international humanitarian laws in so many conventions we have to the non-international armed conflicts is that they're simply out of date? That we have a conventions that state that genocide is illegal, but they don't explain genocide and they took it only from the Holocaust example, and there are so many more saying that combatant is such and such, but no, nobody is combatant by that law anymore. Uh, I must say I'm of the uh, I'm of those who are very skeptical when I hear that the law is outdated. Except if you make precise proposals, what should be the new law? And if you t say the law is outdated and people go home with the impression, okay, this means I may torture because that's outdated. And this was one of the problems, including of a defense secretary in this country who said the Geneva Conventions are outdated without giving his soldiers immediately new instructions, what are the new rules? And therefore, he is co-responsible for what these soldiers did. Because obviously, when my uh, boss says this is outdated, then... So, I would say, somehow, there are indeed problems. And as lawyers, as lawyers, we could always dream of better rules, but first they must be accepted by states. And the old rules are better than the new rules. Article 3 common of the, to the Geneva Conventions is addressed explicitly to both parties, P, capital P, of the conflict. In Protocol 2, Again, like with combatants, like with armed groups, they didn't even mention the other party because states have the illusion, ostrich-like attitude, the illusion that if we don't speak about them, they will disappear. Let's close our eyes and armed groups, terrorists, all this will disappear. While this is not the uh, reality. So, I would say, in situations like the Congo, Sudan, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, Iraq. It would already be so wonderful if Article 3 common was perfectly respected. And then if some additional basic uh, human rights principles, 80% of the problems would already uh, be solved. And then we could always dream about uh, additional rules. Unfortunately for the time being, but this may change, uh, I hope, quickly, uh, there's no hope to change anything because states do not want new rules. And today, I guarantee you, if we were uh, bringing together a diplomatic conference of the 198 states parties to the Geneva Conventions, they would never, ever adopt again Article 3 common. So let's be happy, happy that we have it. And I think here I'm happy to be on this side of the channel because you know that in the English system that we can live with old rules. Okay, obviously you have judges uh, who have much more uh, frequent decisions, but let's say we can develop them through legal reasoning and we don't have to hope always 
that the legislator, legislator doesn't exist in international law, will uh, adapt the rules. Well, first, let me thank our food soldiers who are covered by human rights and international <laughs> humanitarian law for organizing this event so brilliantly. And they include Dr. Luis Arimatu, um, Nicholas Lamp, and Lisa Hemingway. Thank you very much. And most of all, of course, we have to thank our splendid speaker, uh, both for the manner of engagement, uh, presentation, uh, practicality, uh, you mentioned it all, humor, uh, road in one lecture. Thank you very much.